0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talk to Laurie Penny about her new book, Sexual Revolution, Modern Fascism and the Feminist Fight Back. We talk about the roots of the resurgence of violence against women, what it means to build a culture of consent, and how women can organise to resist their oppression and exploitation. Thank you, as always, to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests, please support us at Patreon.com/slash/AWorldToWinPod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts, and share your favorite episodes on social media, tagging at AWorldToWinPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track, Heavyweight Champion of the World, as our intro and outro music. And now here is my interview with Laurie Penny. Hello, Laurie Penny, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today?
1: That is possibly the hardest question of all, but no, I'm all right. And uh, it's really, really great to be here. And I'm excited to, honestly, I'm excited to talk about the book because when you write a big, thinky book like this, you always slightly wonder if you are in fact publishing a book or if you're just having a breakdown until you can just talk about the things to other people.
0: (laughs) So let's just start by chatting a bit about some terms. I wanted you just to start by telling us what you mean by patriarchy in the book you spell it out at several points and I think it's just worth reiterating what patriarchy is and what it isn't.
1: I like to define terms like this partly because well that's one of the ones that really seems to put people off from the get-go. Unfortunately describing the world as it is does tend to put some people off because um, all right so patriarchy I mean going to the etymological root of it which doesn't always render truth but it doesn't mean the rule of men. It means the rule of fathers, as in the rule of a small number of dominant, wealthy, powerful men who are able to enact violence over everyone else, not just over women. And um, patriarchy is a hierarchical system. It's not just a binary. There's a word for that is the gender binary patriarchy relies on the gender binary but it's a much bigger system and I, I believe one of the things I'm setting out in this book is at least in its current form you can't separate capitalism from patriarchy and vice versa it's a fundamentally economic relation which is um, one of the things that you get people um, slightly cross about on, on both I say on both sides I mean I love um, the idea of one day living in the world where you could really genuinely say both sides and you mean, oh, people who are more interested in you know, left wing anti-capitalist politics and people who are more interested in you know, pure feminist politics, if there is such a thing. But yeah, the, um, the idea of patriarchy as an economic structure and as something which is not just the binary rule of all men over all women is something that's important and I unpack it in the book.
0: So what then does it mean to say, as you do with the title of the book, that we're going through a sexual revolution? And is that revolution necessarily a threat to capitalist social relations?
1: Ooh, thanks for the second question as well. Well, the important bit about this, I, I'm calling it sexual revolution because I think that's the proper name for what society is going through. The sexual revolution is already happening. And what it is, is without a lot of fanfare over the course of a number of decades, women have finally been, and by women, I mean people in a uh, in a certain sex class that's not exclusively based on what people say is natal sex. Again, we're, we're doing a lot of taxonomy here, right? But I mean anybody in the broad category of women, right? The sexual revolution is a fundamental change in economic and social relations between men and women, which means that women now have many more options and don't have to put their lives aside or like shape their lives around um, social reproduction. On a base level, look, for most of history with some exceptions, there was, really only one option if you wanted any kind of economic security as a woman and you didn't have hereditary wealth and sometimes even if you did and that was you got married you took your chances you rolled the dice you had kids you raised kids and that was very dangerous there were sometimes when one in ten people who became pregnant died in the course of pregnancy either from childbirth or complications this stuff has been really nightmarish for a really long time And there is a huge restructuring of that basic social and sexual contract going on. And a lot of modern politics can be explained um, by that baseline fact, which uh, is happening anyway. People just haven't really named it out loud very much recently because it's not really done, you know, because women are socialized not to talk about these enormous things happening. And it's almost like we don't want to embarrass men by saying this out loud. But honestly, it's one of the hugest economic and social shifts of our era. And um, a lot of the rise of the far right and of neoconservatism in general uh, can be explained as a backlash to that sexual revolution.
0: I just want you to clarify a little bit again to what extent those patterns that you have been talking about that go back a very long time are (laughs) very much imbricated in modern capitalism and so the extent to which the sexual revolution is also also kind of threatens the reproduction of, of capitalism itself
1: absolutely so capitalism has always required a way to reproduce itself and there's been various options over the number of centuries in which capitalism has existed in its modern and pre-modern form and like most of those some some of the most like well-known of those solutions have been for example the family wage which some socialists um, are still arguing for some feminists are still arguing for you know the idea that men would go out and do work for profit in society or for someone else's profit and they would be paid a wage which would be sufficient to support a family meaning a woman and children and that meant that women's economic dependence on men was structured into the economic deal and into the system of wage labor now that changed over the course of the 20th century it really wasn't the case for very long but we still live in a society which assumes that that should be the case. None of, the, none of our other social structures have changed, which is one of the reasons that people sort of look back to a golden age of the family wage, even though a lot of people, it transpires, weren't actually making that wage at all. I should actually say, um, I should tell you how the book came about and yeah, what, it was, what it was meant to be about. Um, so at the beginning of 2018, I started talking to Bloomsbury about doing a book about consent and we were in the middle of the first big Me Too era and well the second because it was named a few years earlier but we were in the middle of the the big Me Too era and I uh, had some ideas about political consent um, as it related to the consent of the governed and the book I originally sold which turned into this book was a book about I think I was really meant to do a sort of how-to book about consent, specifically about sexual consent, which is not what I pitched, but I think is what people generally wanted. But I took a look at, you know, I was thinking a lot about consent and about sexual violence for various reasons, partly because I was being asked about it a lot. I was touring with my last book and it occurred to me There's a quote I use in the book, in this one, from Carl Sagan, where he says, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to reinvent the universe. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, well, there are some baseline rules you can have for sexual consent, particularly in in the terms of, like, straight sex. But actually, if you really want to create a world or a society where men and women can be intimate without like inviting violent and in unequal power relations into the room with you then you basically have to remake gender relations from the ground up or at least rethink them and so i came back to my publishers and said more or less that and they said oh, well, that that wasn't what we were, that was a bit of a bigger remit than what we were expecting. And uh, my my poor publishers have been very, very patient with me (laughs) as I've run around and um, like, I've I've related this back to the entire history of gender and labor relations. And they're like, good, good. Okay, sure. And, And yeah, they've been very, very tolerant. But that's partly why the book is so conceptually large, but it's also the way i've tried to write it is in a in a way that's accessible without being patronizing essentially i've sort of pre-digested a lot of theory books so nobody has to read a bunch of theory before coming to this and the reason i've done that is because um i was um i was a kid who discovered second wave feminism maybe in retrospect a little bit too young so i'm 35 now which means i'm from the very specific cohort where the internet really hit as a force when I was already in my teens. Um, So it hasn't been around my whole life, but most of my adult life, like Facebook began and I got my first Facebook account when I was in my second year of uni. But it meant that actually, I was sort of researching feminist stuff on my own from some random second wave feminist books I found in my school library of all places, when I was like 11 which, uh, which, like, I was a weird kid. It was my thing. It was that and also um, Star Trek and Green Day. Star Trek, Green Day and second wave feminism, all of which are still great, but also problematic and need an update. Apart from, no, Green Day doesn't. Green Day's perfect. Definitely Sorry.
0: agree with you on Green Day.
1: I besmirched the name of Billy Joel. <laughs> Billy Joe, not Billy Joel. And, um, although, funny. actually, I, d- I don't <laughs> know if you saw, um, Green Day are apparently going to release a book of feminism. My sister texted me about this. Sorry, my sister texted me about this. And I'm like, I just don't know how to feel about that. Those are two things I really like. And I just don't know if they should go together in that explicit way.
0: I'm not, I can't see it, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually going to see Green Day <laughs> with Fallout Boy. And I think Smash Mouth. In a concert what? that has been delayed three years and is basically going to be taking me back to my youth, I'm ex- extremely excited about it.
1: Green Day are proper anarchists, actually. They're the good ones. I didn't um, know that. that is good. Yeah, yeah, they're great. They um, they donate uh, money to the good causes and and like always have, not just recently. Yeah, yeah, apparently, yeah. they're quite
0: good. To good. know, probably not relevant to <laughs> what we're supposed to be talking about, but hey,
1: <laughs> Green Day are always relevant. <laughs>
0: I'm going to ask you the next question. I don't know if Connor will keep all of this in, but we'll see.
1: I Um, dare you, Connor. I dare
0: you. The listeners will love it. Okay, back to very serious matters. Very serious. start the book, not coincidentally, by talking about violence and rape. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by the term rape culture and how it relates to sexual authoritarianism?
1: Rape culture is one of those terms that when people hear out of context, they think or, or they, they leap to, an assum- to different assumptions about what it means. But rape culture isn't a culture where rape is common and ubiquitous, although it often, it, that often is part of it. Rape culture is a culture or a society where rape and sexual violence are tacitly or, or implicitly condoned. You don't have to be a rapist to participate in rape culture. You don't have to be a victim of rape to participate in rape culture. You just have to be part, like, rape culture is when a person is a victim of sexual violence and speaks about it, say, at work or in a community group, and they are either not believed or they are believed, but people take the side of the predator because that's what's more comfortable and like socially beneficial to do. That's rape culture. Um, rape culture is that a broader set of social assumptions, which are the foundation of sexual authoritarianism. And sexual authoritarianism is what underlies the economic system of patriarchy, like we were talking about. So, and again, this is like um, <laughs> when I've been using terms like this for more than 30 seconds, I kind of want to say park life. I but, know. Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but that's a, it's a, it's a bit unavoidable which is yeah. why i've kind of gone back through this book a few times and tried to make certain things clearer but the assumption of rape culture is that men are have a base entitlement to women's sexualities to the use of women's bodies not just for sex but for all sorts of things like they have an entitlement to women's attention and time and the labor of women's bodies and um and viewing women and girls and femme people as a like an undistinguished natural resource to be exploited it's a logic of exploitation that I argue in the book is very similar to the logic of capitalist exploitation Mm. as well as being part and parcel of the same like overall economic structure park life (laughs) (laughs) sorry
0: (laughs) okay so why do you think that we need to we need like a wholesale redefinition of the meaning of the term consent
1: oh um I think well certainly in terms of how we understand sexuality and how how we do sexuality on a a practical level which sounds very unerotic how do we do sexuality on a practical level um sounds like our duty to the party but our understanding of consent needs to be in, at least in the short and media ter- medium term, like reworked to include straight women's desire as, as a thing, <laughs> let's mm. say it's um, like straight sex is still imagined as something that like as a resource that women and girls hoard mm. and like men have to sort of fight for access to, like it was a commodity. Mm. And um, that, way of thinking I think is very very it's damaging for everyone mm. but I honestly I went back to the idea of um, of consent in terms of how how the notion of the modern state is constructed and um how our understanding of consent and sexuality and how and the violence implicit in that is related to our understanding of consent of the government as a way of managing hierarchy as a way of managing conflict and preventing it and um and reifying certain structures of oppression part life <laughs> I'm sorry I'm gonna keep doing this because I hear myself saying it like I'm really trying if anyone needs
0: to <laughs> ask Laurie the meaning of anything she said you can at
1: her yeah Twitter. absolutely <laughs> absolutely it's fine oh my goodness yeah um but yeah I am um, uh, I then had to go back through it again, because um, at, by this point, when I was deep into the, you know, this, this relates to why um, representative democracy was never, um, was never the fully consensual system it was supposed mm. to be. And um, at that point, I really was going on on a bit of a, like, I, I'm not going to call it a, a breakdown because I was really enjoying myself, you know, I was having a lot of fun. Um, but it was uh, January 2021, and uh, I was in a house by myself in Los Angeles with, um, you know, the entire world collapsing outside, and um, I was listening to more podcasts than usual. Yeah. And um, uh, when I when I started actually inventing words, I was like, no, you're not allowed to invent words for this, sorry. <laughs> no, you, you use the, we've already got a lot we've of We've all words. been there. Make it simpler. Yeah. <laughs> I think, every, I think a lot of people have done who like like playing with ideas and going deep down the rabbit hole is completely fine um, as long as you have contact with other human beings who will yeah, occasionally tell, tell you to weird. get over yourself. Safe yeah, travels. exactly. Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, it, it wasn't um, epidemiologically possible. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, by the time I did final edits uh, the world was slightly open again. So...
0: I want to ask you a bit about. I mean, this is like you know the subtitle of your book, so it's a really important part Mm -hmm. of your argument. Why you argue that? And this is a quote from your book: "A certain strain of revanchist sexism Mm -hmm. is a point of entry to fascism."
1: Yeah. So the modern far right is organized. Obviously, all fascism is kind of the same in some ways, but modern fascism, the entry point is often not racism, for a lot of people at least, mm. it's misogyny. Um, because the thing, is, the thing is that one of the big differences between fascism now and fascism in the 30s and 40s is that everybody knows, in theory at least, that the Nazis were the bad guys, right? Mm. And so it is quite hard, not as hard as you might hope, but it's quite hard to get people to right away sign up to would you like to become a Nazi? Right, you have to be a little subtler than that. That's why you know I've looked in different studies of how like extremist recruitment. Not so I can do it myself; I'd be very bad at that. But mm-hmm. um, just to, to understand how it works, and um, a lot of the entry points for this, which um, like set people off down that rabbit hole, um, and by people in this at this stage, I mainly mean straight white men in the global north, although not always. Um, But there is a huge sense of resentment at uh, lack of access to all the things that women are supposed to owe to Mm. men and boys and all the things that in our narratives, what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, like women are supposed to give to men as a sort of natural affect. And we may not have been very good at articulating out loud just how much has changed, like just how just how different it is to live, for example, in a world where there is not just the freedom, but the real option to walk away from an abusive relationship or just mm. an unsatisfactory relationship. But that fact, the fact that women don't just have to hold out for the best possible man they can yoke themselves to, um, some some people do, of course, but fewer of us do, mm. that fact changes everything about the fundamental assumptions of masculinity and so you've got um and those assumptions haven't changed because you know the first rule of man club is you're not supposed to talk about man club men and boys are still raised with uh, this sense of entitlement this sense of a sexual contract that goes one way and when that contract isn't filled um, they become extremely bitter extremely resentful particularly because there is so much else in the world that is um that is very disappointing and that their lives haven't often worked out in the way they were they were expecting and all the traditional sources of status and security and self-confidence have been worn away as well so really so much is freighted on sexuality and like men actually are almost expecting and demanding more from from their straight relationships as the rest of the world has become harder and harder and Women just aren't really having it anymore. And, like, I, there are so many people I know who have decided after many years of dating that it is that they're just not going to bother anymore with them um, with the world of straight men. You know, if somebody comes along, like this happened to me, if somebody happens to come along who seems like they would make a fantastic partner, then great, but they're not going to like we're not going to shave off parts of ourselves mm. to like prop up the walking wounded of capitalism anymore. Right so one of the things that I, I try to say a, a number of times in the book is that a lot of these problems are at root problems about of um, of race and class and economics but those problems are experienced in a highly gendered way. Mm. So um like young men for example um, many of their their basic problems. So let's say in the UK, um, because the the situation of class and race in the United States is different. Whatever anybody says, it's different. It's not that the UK isn't a racist country. It's just class is organised slightly differently. But let's say in the UK, young men are like less economically secure than they used to be. A lot of them are you know, forced to still live with their parents is the cliche, but you know, people yell all the time on the internet about, oh, you're still living with your parents. That's, that's the only viable option for some people. Mm. And, you know, they don't have the sort of fulfilling careers or that they were like told they would have in, you know, when we were growing up in the sort of, in that weird time of the 90s and the mm. early aughts. And they were, a lot of their expectations what it would mean to be an adult have not been fulfilled but culture can't take responsibility for its own economic failings so it's still phrased in terms of personal failure and and when it's experienced when that's experienced that sort of sense of personal failure and loss and fear it's experienced in a gendered way for everyone but for young men it can feel like i'm a failure as a man you know i'm not the kind of i'm not the kind of man that I was raised to think I ought to be I'm not you know I'm not the hero of this adventurous story that I was meant to be starring in and that sounds like that I don't mean that to sound patronizing because because it isn't meant to be I think it is it is deeply painful and unfortunately some people are not able to sit with that pain Mm. and they're not strong enough to think their way through or feel their way through that pain and they take that pain out on chiefly on women and girls to start with um in this vengeful way and then it although some for some people racism is the entry point but um then um very quickly the resentment turns towards in some places immigrants in some places people of color sometimes both and lately it's also been against trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming people but the entry point for a lot of people is uh baseline in sort of knee-jerk misogyny and that bitter sexist entitlement and um I've watched because I've been on the internet for far too long now I've sort of watched that happen um, to lots of people but there are you know individuals I can think of who I won't name who I just watched over the course of about five years start off being like maybe a uh, Woman had dumped them, or maybe they'd said something that was a bit ignorant and sexist online, and somebody had shouted at them like start off down the slippery slope, and five years later they were a full on white supremacist and mm-hmm. um that's that's happened a lot and it's it's not just young people either you know it's um I have a lot of friends in the u s in particular, and in the u s again like racism is much more complicated as as a combined entry point there. But um, I know a lot of people who have lost like entire sections of their family to this, these weird cults Mm. and blaming the internet isn't really enough of an answer because that's like blaming, like it's like blaming the radio for fascism in the 1930s. Yes, it was a useful tool, but it was a force amplifier rather than the origin of the distress. Mm. I talk to a lot of men on the internet about their feelings because I'm actually interested,
0: yeah.
1: and um, and uh, and it's sort of slightly my job anyway. And a lot of people like were bullied and unpopular at school and are still not over it because it's really yeah. hard to get over that stuff and are really confronted by people like, gently explaining to them that some people have to deal with that. And then on top of that, have to deal with also being a woman or being queer or being trans or being a person of color or an immigrant. But that doesn't mean that the deep pain of being singled out and excluded or picked on or, or assaulted isn't real pain. And I think there, because there is a understanding that the pain and the, and the emotional experience of white men in particular is just resonates a higher frequency that it's, it's the most important pain that there is. That's why um, people talk about the white working class by which they mean the white male working class, mm. um, which also it just isn't a category that makes any sense on an mm. economic or theoretical level, but they, they talk about um, the, the white working class is having quote unquote legitimate concerns when they come out in the streets and are waving torches and being, you know, little um, tin pot shitler youth. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, (laughs) but (laughs) hooray. Um, But um, when, you know, people come out to protest over the police murder of people of colour, they're going too far. They're rioting. Um, they're, They're just thugs. They don't have legitimate concerns, even though that pain is you know, it, it much more urgent in so many ways. Um, it's about whose whose emotions count, whose mm. pain and suffering matters. So like and that's one of the reasons why, for example, when it comes to issues of, of rape and sexual violence, we're still far more concerned with with the feelings of people who might be accused of rape, falsely or otherwise, than we are with people who are raped. Mm. Um, that that kind of suffering and that experience doesn't seem to. Re- I think honestly, there is still a a basic assumption. I'm overusing that word, I know, but there's a basic assumption that only white men really have feelings. <laughs>
0: there's a point that you have in your book, which I think is really interesting and relevant, especially in the UK, there is this real assumption at the moment that is linked into Islamophobia that basically Mm -hmm. only kind of brown men commit rape or sexual violence. And you talk in the book about how sexual violence is characterized as an outside threat.
1: Absolutely. And um, thank you for bringing it back to that because I've actually, I'm, I'm writing a new piece about it. Um, Mm. The idea of the outsider rapists um, comes from, um, I don't know if she originated the idea, I'm pretty sure she did, but the phrase the outsider rapist, I got from Angela Davis, who was Mm. writing about the rape myths in the the mid-century United States, where the only time that white supremacist culture paid attention to questions of sexual violence was when black men were accused, often falsely, things seems like usually falsely of acts of sexual violence against white women, and that was used to justify lynchings as well as all kinds of um, like less horrifically horrific, but really, really bad laws and acts of violence um, against black and brown people. And you see that logic repeated in Europe today, where the idea is that sexual violence is real, but it's a it's a threat that comes from outside. Sexual violence that exists within the white supremacist or the white in group never counts as sexual violence because white men are entitled to the bodies of white women. You know, they own white women, and uh, it's uh, sexual violence is imagined as as a property crime. Uh, that, the sort of the cheap and dirty way to say it is um, immigrants are coming over here, raping our women. And that's our job, you know, <laughs> um, which yeah. is not, it's not, it, it's a, it's a, simp- it's a simplification, but it's not, not true. So for example, there's the enormous focus on the, on the uh, child grooming gangs in Rotherham, which were real and occurred and had real victims um, who really didn't deserve to become the focus of um so much racist and xenophobic hate speech well not them but like the campaign around it they didn't deserve to be have their experiences weaponized like that but um, the many 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 women and children who are victimized and preyed on and exploited by white men in the united kingdom are are invisible somehow because that doesn't count Mm. as rape that doesn't count as a violation for many many years rape was a property crime it wasn't a crime against a person it was you would uh, you would like literally uh, made it was treated like you'd like you'd broken an item in a shop Mm. you know and and sometimes what like the punishment for punishment for rape was you had to marry the person you'd raped mm. and that was meant to make it okay and we still those laws mostly aren't on the books anymore though it took very long time to get them off the books in most countries but we still live with a lot of the cultural assumptions that the cultures that wrote those laws um passed down to us and we're not um it takes a long time for those stories to change and the stories we tell each other and ourselves about who we're supposed to be in the world. And that's why I think all politics are identity politics, honestly. When people talk about, like, white supremacist politics are identity politics. They're just um, politics that are about, um, again, uh, it, it doesn't count as identity because that's just being normal.
0: mm What do you mean when you say that modern masculinity is its own worst enemy? And I want also to talk a bit about the sexual revolution that you've talked about has in some ways allowed us to start to reclaim and redefine what it means to be a woman in an expansive Mm. sense. But there seems to be this absence of positive models of masculinity. So I'm going to ask you the slightly provocative question. (laughs) What does a good man look like?
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, that's a question that comes up a lot, um, because I think there is this real feeling among the large number of men and boys who are just sort of hanging on white knuckle to a sense of personal decency, who like, who didn't drink the Kool-Aid and haven't Mm. gone down that rabbit hole. And that's not – that. I actually believe in giving cookies to everyone because I'm that Mm -hmm. kind of person. I don't think other people have to. Nobody else has to, but I'm just like – that's sort of where I'm like – I'm like, yeah, you're doing great. I think it's like – I think being a decent human being in this world is quite hard, Mm. and people should get a a pat on the back for it. We all should for trying. But there's a lot of men and boys out there who are just – like they're basically not sure what to do and not sure where to go and who they're meant to be, and they've existed in that holding pattern for a, for a long time, because most stories are still about men and about masculinity, although that is changing slowly. Most like of our cultural narratives about being human are about being a man, but it is still um, people find models of masculinity which aren't at the end of the day about dominance, about winning, about gaining sexual status, um, they find those, like they're uncomfortable stories. Mm. And so it's like the James Bond problem is one of the things I like to talk about. And that like, they keep making these James Bond movies, right? And James Bond is still the hero of those movies. And that's who you, that you're meant to want to be. Little boys are sort of, I mean, obviously it's quite an easy costume, but little boys go out to Halloween dressed as James Bond. But we also know that James Bond is like a violent, misogynist, alcoholic asshole. He, he's killed hundreds of people. You wouldn't want to hang out with him. He's dangerous. And resolving those two things is creates this real cognitive dissonance. Um, and I think, like, it's not just about role models so much as it's about normalising things. Like, I, I'm I'm kind of over the concept of role models in general, particularly when people talk about uh, role models for women and girls. Like, all our role models were meant to be, you know, these high-flying career women, you know, look mm. at them, they've got 10 kids and they run two companies. I'm like, that looks, like, exhausting. <laughs> you know, when Like, the revolution will have really made gains when, like, there's a narrative where, like, Women and girls are allowed to be just like people who give the full sixty percent. People who just have like a, have a medium amount of effort and aren't superhuman. That that will be fine, mm. right? People who are allowed to have flaws and get it wrong sometimes. I think like realistic models where people are allowed to be rounded people are better than role models. And I've asked a lot of people like, so what is the what's the model of how a decent man really should be? in like what What are your favorite fictional characters and um can you guess what the number one was like it came it was like half the answers were this and I no, don't what? think that's all about it was uh, Jean-Luc Picard oh my goodness <laughs> yeah well if you think about it I'm like huh yeah and, and actually a lot of the other and obviously there's some selection bias in the people who follow my feed yeah because I'm, I'm a giant nerd but like most of the examples were from science fiction. Interesting. And so it, it seems that it is possible to imagine a model of decent masculinity, but not outside within of our modern entirely. capitalism. Yeah. Exactly. And Star Trek The Next Generation is specifically a story about a post scarcity future.
0: Yeah.
1: It's basically you know, space communism. Mm. And um, like, maybe, like maybe we have to wait for, or at least imagine those kinds of societies in order to, that you can't imagine a decent, a quote unquote decent guy inside of white supremacist patriarch capitalism.
0: So you talk a bit about how the kind of backlash to the Me Too movement has often Mm -hmm. framed its, you know, quote unquote legitimate concerns in terms of a desire to allow for kind of free sexual expression. But I thought you made a really interesting argument in the book, which is actually the ideas that one of the ideas that underpins sexual violence is actually the idea that women don't want sex. So that actually sexual repression is part and parcel of this kind of, you know, system of rape culture. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And also the politics of desire more generally.
1: Basically, thanks for summing it up like that, because this seems to me very obvious, but it's one of those things that you look at. It took things like the Me Too movement to make the basic false assumptions of, of modern sexuality visible. And one of the most important of those assumptions is that sex is something that men want and women have and control. And sex isn't something that women act- actively desire. And also that sex is a thing that you can distribute rather than, you know, something that people do together. I'm talking about this in straight terms and I think it operates differently outside heterosexuality but queer people still exist in a heteronormative world and um, so I think this is in some ways still relevant but the idea that the Me Too movement was anti-sex is I think really dangerous and really and just intellectually wrong. The idea that trying to create a world where there's less rape is in any way sexually repressive it's just wrong-headed uh, sexual violence is sexual repression mm. not just oppression women's sexuality is controlled everywhere with the threat of violence and the threat of sexual violence the threat of um, other kinds of physical violence and the threat of, um, you know, of social exclusion and social violence women's sexuality is not free in a culture where rape is normalized, in a rape culture, and um, the Me Too movement taken to its logical conclusion is about sexual freedom. But I think, like, actually, since I wrote this and since I um, I handed in the last draft, I think I, I see something changing, particularly, there's actually a book coming out in the next few months called um, Against the Sexual Revolution, <laughs> but I see, Within the feminist movement and within the neoconservative movement, and the unfortunate parts where where um, where those things overlap, I see a real anti-sex backlash
0: yeah. coming
1: down the road. Right, I think it's already slightly with us. It's starting with the uh, you know the furious backlash against uh, transgender mm. people and and queer people, but it's moving. You can see it moving into an into a sort of generalized attack on on kink and perversion and what what I found odd actually is that some of the early reviews of my book have been I sort of mentioned kink in this weird way when actually this book doesn't really talk about kink and and actually I don't really like to talk about kink partly because I just like I I don't feel like I can talk about it from experience like I've been look I've been to all the clubs and I've had a great time but I can't I can't keep a straight face like, I cannot. I, you're meant to be very serious about it, and it's it's just not for it's not for me in that way because <laughs> I just I, I giggle too much. Although people are quite respectful, and I I just like the clothes is what I'm trying to say. I like the clothes, <laughs> um, I'm I'm still a lapsed goth, but like the idea that my kind of feminism and like materialist anti-capitalist queer identified feminism is also like it has to be kinky it has to be making this big stand for what um what basically people want to say is perverts and uh, and weirdos and people who aren't normal and um sexuality that's not normal that association has has fascinated me honestly and um i think that um i don't think that good sex however you define it is like the ultimate goal of anyone's feminist revolution i think like that it's more of a like it's it's a transitional demand um but actually you can't really get to a world of of decent and liberated sexuality without doing all of these other things which is kind of what um what uh made me take 3 years over a book that i promised i'd do in 6 months <laughs> and the other thing was that um actually quite soon after i started working on it um, and the base concept of the book something happened in my social circle and in my life which is a, a very close friend of mine and a, a former partner turned out he's a multiple rapist mm. this person um watching the watching the cognitive dissonance that had allowed this person to operate within our social circles for so long and hearing all the different stories about what he'd done and how he justified it and suddenly meeting all these people who had been involved with him like people were coming out of the woodwork and um, and trying to coordinate efforts to make sure he wasn't allowed to hurt people again was all of that was incredibly instructive mm. and incredibly illuminating in terms of how you actually deal like how do we deal with rapists to, is a ongoing question not just theoretical but but also like theoretical within discussions of like the within the anti-carceral movement and the privi- and the prison abolitionist movement in the US which i think more people in the UK should be familiar with frankly because some of the most radical politics and the most relevant Politics is coming out of the of the anti carceral and prison abolitionist movement and the disability rights movement. I think those two things really should be informing a lot more of people's um, of people's thinking within like the the general socialist anti-capitalist movement and feminism, of course.
0: I was going to ask you another question, but I'll let you go because I think that's a good place to end. To be honest. Thank
1: you so much. Yeah, it's honestly been a delight. I could talk for hours um, and I probably shouldn't be allowed to. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much, Grace.